just brief introduction coming on to where we're at today in, in this lesson in Romans 6 where you can begin to find in your Bible. I taught two lessons a few months ago from Romans 6 on what Paul is dealing with within that chapter. He's dealing with two errors that he has been hearing from the crowd, if you will, from supposed believers about grace. And towards the end of chapter 5, he, he begins to close what we know as chapter 5. This error comes up again, and he starts Romans 6, the first two verses, with one of the errors. You get further into the chapter, I think it's around verses 14 and 15, another error comes up regarding grace. And those errors, similar errors like that, continue on today. We'll get into a little more deeply today. Other errors about grace abound. So what is it? What, what do we need to know about grace? How is it involved in our, in our uh, regeneration, our, our justification, and our sanctification? So we're going to get a little deeper into chapter 6. Where I started last week, where I hope to continue to go for a couple of more weeks, is centered around verse 5 and Romans 6, where Paul, in answering these errors about grace, comes up with a profound theological truth. He's been teaching some really sound doctrine from chapter 1 through chapter 5, and then a theological truth and proof of our salvation is that Christ is in us. And he uses the word in the NASB that's united. We're united with Christ. The Holy Spirit is in us. It's a, that's a truth we all believe and, and accept, but that's an issue regarding grace. How now do we live, considering that Christ is in us, that we're united with Christ through the Holy Spirit in all believers. So again, Lord willing, I have a couple more Sundays where we're going to mine out of Romans chapter 6 what's, what are the depths behind our spiritual union with Christ. So let me, let me go ahead and open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for those that are here today to hear your word. We pray for ears and hearts that are open to hear your word, your voice through it and that we would be people of obedience, hearing our Lord speak, we would apply and walk out those truths in our life. And so we thank you for your word, we thank you for Paul that you taught so well and, and teaches us still today, that we would learn through him what your Holy Spirit directed him to write to us as we read it today. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for that, and we thank you for the message that Steve has brought that we'll hear from the pulpit shortly. Lord, again, let that truth just permeate into us that it would continue to sanctify our walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so everybody's somewhere close to Romans 6 in their Bibles. Let me go ahead and read. I'm going to read from, I think I'll pick it up at verse 20 of chapter 5 because it flows into these errors a little bit better there, and I'm going to read through verse 7 of Romans chapter 6. Paul writes in, in 5.20, The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? 
Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin." Last week, we looked at the first result. Again, I, in my study of chapter 6, I feel like a miner with a pick and shovel digging for the, the deeper truths that are in here. We're looking for results coming from our spiritual union with Christ. In the NASB, it says we're united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. You may have a Bible version that doesn't use the word united. It might say planted together. Anybody have anything that says something like that? You've been planted together? Okay. Probably uh, KJV or uh, New King James might be that way. Planted together because that uniting was really an agricultural term of of seeds coming out together as one, that that planting together. So there's a little bit of an agricultural meaning behind that as well. But in that, last week we looked at the first spiritual truth, the first result of our spiritual union with Christ, and it was this, that the resurrection is that dynamic event defining our life in Christ. How do we now walk? Well, it's from the truth that Christ rose, and we rose with him to new life in him. So we looked at that this week. I'm not going to go into a lot of introduction uh, on what I taught last week, or I won't get through this week's message. If you're interested, it's supposed to be on the on the website, the church website. For uh, You could go back and listen to, and you could even go back and listen to those prior two messages about the errors that are in here. But Paul hits this first error comes up right away what shall we say then are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase and what's going on is detractors the so-called believers and and very well could be are running with an error about grace that it is okay that you continue to sin knowing christ went to the cross and died for you and not only is it okay to continue to sin and in a mindset of of sin you do it because god wants you to He's happy about it. He has forgiven your past sins, your present sins, but your future sins, he's got abounding grace to cover that as well. So let's sin even more, give God the joy of abounding grace on even more sin. And it's a, it's a horrible error. And this first comes up back in Romans chapter 3. If you want to turn there real quick, we'll see where, where Paul first gives us the hint that he's hearing about this error. Romans chapter 3, verse 8. We get the first hint about this. So 3.8, he says, And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. It was an error. It was heresy. But it keeps coming back. Paul keeps hearing it. So we come to what we know as Romans chapter 6, and he spends some time on it now, on why it's heresy. So last week, the first result of our spiritual union with Christ was that the resurrection is the dynamic event defining our life in Christ. This week, looking at the centrality of Paul's intent for Romans 6, which is our union with Christ, this uniting with Christ in his death and resurrection, we come to our next point. Christ's death and resurrection is a central point as a reminder of all of his pastoral epistles. It's a central event that controls his ministry so we get to our second result of our spiritual union with christ and it's this 
believers have been given a new spiritual condition received by divine favor. Received by divine favor. Paul's purpose in chapter 6 is to correct these misconceptions, these errors, this heresy that's going on about what grace is and what grace is not. And that's why I chose to not use the word grace, but use its underlying real meaning, which is divine favor. So back in chapter 3, verse 8, we find out that people were saying, Paul, you're telling us about grace, that it's okay, that we, we do more evil, that good may come. But that's a per- perversion of the meaning of grace. We started out reading in, in chapter 5, verse 20, and we see he, pick it, he picks it back up. He says, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Righteousness is the quality of the Godhead. Sin is not a quality of the Godhead. The definition of righteousness is just as a reminder, it's all of God. We have none of our own that we bring to the party, that we bring to salvation. For man, pre-salvation, righteousness there's none in us. Isaiah 64, 6 is one of those verses that we think of about that along the lines of the lack of righteousness that's in us. In fact, what we would think might be righteousness, anything that we pre-salvation might think Godward, we think we're, we're attempting to be holy, we think we're good, it's nothing but what? We say filthy rags, filthy garments, crimson gar- garments. We're totally blood-stained in unrighteousness. Paul's making a point in chapter 6 that Christ went to the cross to bear our sins so that those of true faith could wear a different garment. We have had the qualitative and legal transfer to us in salvation, part of the work of salvation, of Christ's righteousness transferred to our account, we having none. And last week we looked at the role of Christ going to the cross to defeat sin to defeat the penalty and power of sin for us so that by his work we can and we will now do what Paul says we can do in verse 4. If you look down at that, it says you can walk in newness of life. There's been a condition change through our salvation that gives us the ability now to walk a different walk. We walk in newness of life by making it our same purpose to be like our Lord and Savior. And what I talked about last week was that that same purpose. He went to the cross to defeat the power and the penalty of sin for all those who would believe in his work. So what do we do there for? We live in that power to defeat sin in our life, to execute it. And that was the main point of, of my discussion last week is that we need to execute sin. We need to be of the same mindset of the Lord when he went to the cross for us. So how is it that we have this power over sin and that we can execute it? Well, that's another divine work of God in our salvation. We were once dead in sin. That's a spiritual truth we accept. But we have been raised in new life in Christ. We are no longer dead spiritually. We are alive to God. If you drop down to verse 11, we're now alive to God in Christ. You will see Paul write that. 
We have been raised to be righteous as Christ is righteous. Our baptism, every time we have baptism and we see someone coming out of that water, it's a symbolic realization of that truth. We died to sin. We're raised to new life. And first saved, like spiritual babies that we were, or maybe some may be, the Word gives us that spiritual strength we need to go on. Before we can walk in that newness of life, we've got to stand up. And we have the power to do that. We need to first stand up. We were spiritually dead. We were horizontal, if you will, in our relationship with with God. Nothing in us to be able to understand and have a relationship with him. We needed to stand up and get vertical. If you have to, turn back to Romans chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. We're going to see how this happened. As Paul actually talks about it. How we stand in faith, and he'll say, into this grace. So Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Paul writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So we can connect that back, the Holy Spirit given to us, Christ in us, through his death and resurrection, synonymous that we have the infilling of the Holy Spirit given to us. We have stood up. We've been definitely sanctified. We're ready to walk. The power is there. The ability is there. And Paul says back in Romans 5 in those verses that it's because of this grace. This grace brought us that real power behind our ability to stand up and get walking. The Holy Spirit has been given us. It's a past tense because of God's heavenly agape love. Paul says sacrificially, we know that about agape love, poured out into us. So at our regeneration, we have divinely received the Holy Spirit in us, Christ in us, God giving us that uniting, that planting together that Paul describes back in Romans 6, 5, where we're at today. We've undergone in that a change of condition, a change of condition. We've gone from spiritual death to spiritual life. And how do we characterize this new spiritual condition? Before, we were in Adam. And operationally, what that meant was this. We could only say yes to sin. And we said no to God. We were not able not to sin. This is a result of Adam's fall. If you have chapter 5 there, your left, or your, yeah, it should be your left hand. Romans 5, 18 through 19, Paul wrote this. He says, so then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Through one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all men. Through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. 
That points us back towards a, a truth that we hold here at Lakeside of our total inability. We, we know it often as total depravity, that there was nothing in us pre-salvation to solve the problem we had. Separated from God, God's wrath on us for our sin, hell our just due and penalty for that sin. Total inability. Our nature was corrupted. It was shackled into sin's bondage. But regenerated, or afterwards in Christ, we're changed operational, we're able to say no to sin and yes to God. We're able not to sin, but far from perfect. That's where the walking now comes out. The new man has the ability to say no to sin and yes to God and walk out their sanctification given the truth that Paul's giving us. He says, in this grace which we stand. So a change has been imparted to us. We went from not able not to sin to able not to sin. And Christ's righteousness having been applied to us resulted in this union with Christ in which we stand and we can now walk out this righteousness of Christ as we follow his likeness of his resurrection. Our standing is this. We're definitely sanctified. And there's an error going on in American churches today that says there's a separation or there can be a separation between your justification and sanctification. You can actually have a space of time and you can continue to walk in your sin. You're saved. You were justified. Another day, the work will come of sanctification and, and you'll be able to defeat sin. That's not what Paul's telling us here. Paul's telling us that we stood up, definitely sanctified, the power of the Holy Spirit indwelled, everyone saved, and we walk. We have the ability. Christ's work took away the penalty of our sin. It took away the power of sin holding us in its domination and gave us the ability to walk. He defeated sin for us by taking out its penalty and power. We now walk in that victory. To overcome temptations to sin and sin again, we say no to sin. So Romans 5.2, Paul says it was because of this grace. So grace is the error that Paul's dealing with. What is grace? Well, ultimately, it was God's attitude of favor towards his elect. Believers. God favored all who would put their faith in Christ's redeeming work to receive the full impact of Christ's redeeming work. God favored the elect. In the Greek, grace is the word charis. Boiled down, it means unmerited favor. The connection back to the Old Testament is probably best to a Hebrew word hesed. And again, I butchered the word, so forgive me for all of you Greek and, and Hebrew scholars in here. Hesed, loving kindness. Israel being the elect nation that God chose, gave his unmerited favor to them. We connect that back forward to us, the elect, and we receive that same unmerited favor. We call it grace. We call it grace. In God's economy, the elect are given without merit, divine favor, or grace. We get the pardon of sin by grace, eternal salvation given by God to believers in the work of Christ and his merits alone. 
None of ours. We understand that we did nothing. We could do nothing to merit this divine favor. We deserved God's wrath and justice served for our sin. We got what we didn't deserve. Mercy. Grace. Instead, the elect in Christ, again, got what we didn't deserve. We didn't work for it. We couldn't merit it. There was nothing that we did. So by extension, grace then takes on a new meaning, and it should. It's the meaning by which we should stand up and sing at the beginning of service today and worship our Lord for the work he did that brought us this standing and this ability to defeat sin, took hell off the table for us. God's wrath removed, the guilt gone. We have this standing and this ability to walk in this new righteousness, this new grace. So we're awed by receiving that which we did not deserve. We get joy, we get pleasure, we get delight from it. But we take grace and we can run with it in a lot of different directions. I think it's grace if you're driving up and you're a little bit late for church and there's a parking spot. Someone left you in the back. Wow, someone showed me grace today. Thank you, Lord. Uh, There's a parking spot. That's a pretty far extension from unmerited favor. There's an extension of the word charis or, or grace as we have it in English. Charisma. Our charisma, it's the gifts of grace that we receive, those, those benefits of salvation, those divine gifts. It's like Christmas every day if we would concentrate our mind on this. We would have that understanding every day of the power God's given us to walk our Christ-likeness, to walk in that newness of life. If you look at the first package of this gift and you, you thought about this every day, heaven, secure, peace with God. Spiritual death to renewed spiritual life, right standing with God. The standing we're giving brings us all that we need to, to walk in Christ's likeness. Yet there's more. It's, it's like another big package. Oh, we get more than that? What else is there? You get another gift package. You get faith. You get knowledge. You get wisdom, holiness, godly virtues comes to believers. And it's a combination of, of grace and grace gifts that we think about by God's merciful kindness, he turned us to Christ. He imparted his Holy Spirit to, to us to keep us and strengthen us. To increase our faith and our knowledge. To increase our affection toward him. Those are all exercises of the new man in Christ. That's how we walk in those grace gifts. And ultimately, those benefits of those divine gifts came from God to his elect. Look back at Romans 5.21 for this reason. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're We're to show the reigning of Christ in our life by walking out holy living in our life here on earth, day by day, until we have heaven as a reality. Do we need more filling? Or do we have enough divine favor and its corresponding gifts to accomplish what Paul says in chapter 6, verse 4, to walk? Paul teaches that through Christ's cross work, all divine work is done on behalf of the believer to gift them with everything required for salvation and holy living. Holy living always accompanies salvation by unmerited favor. 
So there's a direct connection to our ability to live holy by God's grace or unmerited favor given us at salvation. Divine favor or grace was freely given by God to each believer. It woke us up. It stood us up. And it got us walking. And note this. No believer gets more grace that they can give to someone else. So that parking spot, it's really not a good good uh, analogy of, of grace at all. No believer gets more grace than they can impart to another. Here, have some of mine. I got more than I deserve. We got, all, we got what we needed. Now, there are other religions that would dispute that. Catholics would say, no, Mary was imparted an abundance of grace and continues to be imparted an abundance of grace, and you get more from her as you need it. They have elevated Mary to a mediatrix and consider that she is a storehouse of graces to be given out. Why go to Jesus or the Word when you can go to Mary? She has what you need for that continual pouring out of more grace. So charis in the Latin over time has gone far from its original meaning of unmerited favor. In Luke 128 in the NASB, it tells us that the angel Gabriel greets Mary in the right way. Favored one. Favored one. But in the KJV, it says full of grace. And from that, you, you twist scripture and you say full of grace and ever more grace. And grace comes from her. Then we have charismatics who teach that the work of Christ is insufficient to save and, the, and there's no power to get you towards holiness. You need more. You need a second blessing. More gifts are required to prove you're saved. And, and just a, a brief commercial, if you haven't gone online and listened to all the messages of the Strange Fire Conference, just Strange Fire, Ben, it's probably all you put in, Strange Fire Conference, listen to every one of them. Listen to every one of them. In overseeing the new members' classes, I can tell you that there's, there's one area of our doctrinal stand where cessationists that a lot of people come here and they go, I'm not so sure. I'm just not so sure. There must be something right there. There's so many of them following after Pentecostalism and, and charismatic movements. Maybe there's something there right. I'll, I'll give a shout-out to Steve's best friend, Phil Johnson. I can't remember the words he described used to describe the bathtub of water that is the charismatic movement. But when you get done listening to it, you don't want to put your toe in there, water. You want to be done with that water. And then John MacArthur wrote a book as well called Strange Fire. A good one to read as well. Is God skimpy with grace? No. Do you feel like you've been skimped? Do you feel like sin... Or a besetting sin has the best of you, but it's just not working for me. I don't have enough. I think I was maybe just looked over at salvation. I need to pray for more grace. What we need to pray for is that the grace you received, you use correctly. You have it. Second Peter 1.10. Might as well start turning there. Keep your, your finger in uh, Romans 6. Scripture encourages us towards this to be all the more diligent to make sure of our calling and election. Let's read Second Peter 1, verses 5 through 9. 
Now, for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence and in your moral excellence, knowledge and in your knowledge, self-control and in your self-control, perseverance and in your perseverance, godliness and in your godliness, brotherly kindness and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted having forgotten his purification from his former sins. That's saying something similar to what Paul was saying back in Romans 6 in the middle. You died with Christ to that former sinful life. You've been purified from it. You rose with him in his righteousness, with his righteousness clothing you. Why do you want to go back there? You've been purified. Verse 9 says you have forgotten how does it put that? For you, Alaxi's qualities is blind or short-sighted. You've, you've forgotten what Christ did for you. The full value of God's unmerited favor has already been given. How are we to grow in fruitful holiness? Find verse 8, the end of it. It comes through true knowledge, increasing knowledge of Christ. Stick with me in, in 2 Peter chapter 1. So let's go back up to the top of the... Start with verse 1. It says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, Peter's telling us, hey, what I have, you got. I'm nothing special. We have the same thing. We share the same faith. We share the same indwelling Holy Spirit. We, sh we have the same grace gifts. Now we know by Scripture some get grace gifts at teaching and do a lot better that, at that than others. But we have the same grace. Verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied you. How? How is the grace we've received and the peace with God that we already have, how is it multiplied to us according to verse 2? In the knowledge of God and the Savior Jesus Christ and of Jesus our Lord. We have to get into this if we want to learn how to get walking a little better than we do. So my point is if we have sins that are besetting us, the solution's in here. Part of the solution, our choosing to hear the word, the voice behind the word as our Lord and doing it is the other part of the solution. Grace has already come to the believer. We have been made spiritually alive. God's word now has life in us. And from the word comes knowledge of God and Christ to conform us to him so that we can now walk in that newness of life. You can turn back to Romans chapter 6. Paul's rebutting those who have perverted the, mean, the true meaning of grace, unmerited favor. And basically what they were saying that can be said by some even today that, hey, I've got security. Justification has bought me security. I am going to heaven. It is no reason for neglecting your duty to walk sinless, to be executing sin, to put active holiness and activity in the execution of sin and the continued desire to sin. And just bluntly, the godly life is not optional from the moment of salvation. 
So how do we find more grace? Know more about God in Christ, through his word. Not just head knowledge, actively walking out its authority over you. The person who has received unmerited favor from God in salvation, who does not pursue godliness, is deceiving himself. God's divine favor and grace gave you standing, gave you the ability to walk in newness of life, which is in likeness to Christ. We've got to read about him to see what that likeness looks like so that we have a comparison, a standard. We can look in the mirror and go, is that me? Is that how I'm walking? But grace or divine favor given at our regeneration, our salvation, it's sufficient to save you. It sustains you in a lifetime of increasing holiness. So let's look again at the beginning of chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Paul repeats this error. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? How do we rephrase that so it's meaningful to you and I? How do we put the positive on that so that it fits us? What shall we say then? Here's what we should say. We walk or we continue in the grace or divine favor we have already been given so that our sinning will decrease. That's it. We're not perfect at our regeneration and our salvation. We've got the power to execute sin and walk out a life of increasing holiness. And remember, grace received has given us other gifts, the ability to learn wisdom, the knowledge to walk holy, that we were previously dark or was previously dark to our understanding. And we get this furtherances of the grace already received through our continued learning of God and Christ in his word. So if we are praying for more grace, for whatever reason, parking spot, overcoming sin, pour instead more of God through his word in, more of Christ through his word in, into the study of the word and the application of it into how you live. Turn over one book to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's just work with that a little bit more. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 18 through 31. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness 
and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So our uniting with Christ through salvation and our regeneration, it brought us the Holy Spirit, the gifts that came with it we have, those grace gifts. Wisdom and knowledge of God and Jesus Christ is how we walk out the gift given. James tells us in chapter 1, 17 through 18, don't need to turn there, you know this well, that all good things come down from the Father of lights. And in the exercise of God's will in saving us, he brought us forth, how? By the word of truth. So that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. There's absolutely no reason for us to be continuing in any sin. There's every reason for us to be fighting it, executing it. So the wisdom to overcome sin and walk in Christ-likeness that does not come down from the Father of lights is a waste. It will only prolong your walk in trying to overcome sin. 1 Corinthians verse 30, what's God's purpose in saving us? By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. He's the wisdom we have. If we are going to be people of praise that show the world that we are different, we're in Christ. We're able to do that. We're able to be different. We're able to say no to sin. We're able to stay married our entire life. What a big change that is from the world. Unfortunately, 60% of Christians, professing Christians, fall into that problem. Two planes of time to consider being in Christ. Just pull some theological truth, doctrinal truth together here. We had an election union with Christ before creation. When God chose a peculiar people out of the mass of all sinful, sinful humanity, upon which to give divine favor for salvation. It was never to be altered could not be dissolved. It was a predestined choice of God that you be saved, and it was not dependent on you or by any merit coming from you. That's the far connection, the nearer connection. We had a more recent union in Christ when we were called by the gospel of God. That's where Paul's at here in chapter 6. Gospel of God, gospel of Christ. Mark uses the term gospel of God in the beginning of first chapter of Mark. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. When we think about the gospel, we think of the gospel of Christ, the work he did at the cross, the work he did of a perfect life and that substitutionary death. The gospel of God, Titus 2, defines for us this way. Paul says the gospel of God is this, for the grace of God has appeared. Christ came. The gospel of Christ happened. Divine favor for the elect came to restore the relationship to God by the eternal plan to send an elect substitute sin bearer to us. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, it unfolded to us when we heard it and we were called to it. It was his perfect life. It was his substitutionary death. And it was all of his work. So our union with Christ has both a very far application and a much nearer application. Although we heard the gospel sometime in the last 
Let me see who the oldest person is in here. I won't go there. A few years. So the execution of God's eternal purpose was to make the elect in Christ the wisdom from God so that we would understand clearly these truths, that Christ's righteousness, it was imputed to our account. The wisdom to live the sanctified life comes through Christ, the eternal word. God knew our needs. He provided everything that we would require to walk in newness of life. He's not surprised by anything. He wasn't surprised by the fall. He wasn't surprised by Christ's death. And he knew that when we fell from original righteousness, we fell from all wisdom, we became fools, such that we would even mistake evil for good, darkness for life. But sovereign election made sure that we would be blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The grace gift received of the ability to know God through his word, to receive knowledge and wisdom ever increasing, was given to us in that package of grace, divine favor. Sanctification, that's what we think about right now. It's progressive sanctification. We're walking out, we're getting away from sin, we... We repent of it, we turn away from it, we walk towards God. We have the imputed sanctification Christ gave us. We have the Holy Spirit imparted to us, so we have that ability. By grace, the ability to know Christ was given us by the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Through the continued study of the Word, we understand and comprehend more and more about God and Christ so that we have that standard. And and we all have a lot of work to do there comes back to chapter 6. You can turn back there. We'll close up back in chapter 6. United with Christ in the likeness of his burial and his resurrection. It did away with our old man. We had a spiritual nature that could not connect with God whatsoever. We now have that connection. We are the new man. We know full well it didn't do, it didn't do away with our ability to not be sinners anymore. We have work to do. Regeneration brought us the new man that says no to sin and yes to God. We can do what Paul tells us to do in this chapter. I'm just going to paraphrase. You can find the verses. What does Paul tell us to do in the midst of chapter 6 as we read through it? Verse 1, he says, do not continue in sin. Verse 2, do not live in sin. Verse 6, no longer be slaves to sin. Verse 12, don't let it rain. Don't let sin rain. Verse 12, again, do not obey its lusts. Verse 13, do not present your body to sin. Verse 14, do not let sin master you. Our ability to walk in the newness of life given to us through Christ's death and resurrection requires us from that point where Paul says these things, keep learning. That's why we're here. Keep learning and applying. The second result of our spiritual union with Christ, believers have been given a new spiritual condition received by divine favor. So how do we apply this truth? I've already said it. How do we apply it? We honor the God who chose us, redeemed us, gave us this spiritual union in Christ by honoring his word. The word alone is our guide to holy living. We honor the authority behind that word. And I just wrote a note this morning as I think about that authority. It took me back to a 
a picture in my mind, Ezekiel 37, all those bones out there. They were spread out. They were disconnected from the original body, but in the power of the Spirit, the bones come together to their original body, and they stand up. And it says in Ezekiel 37, they stood up, and they were an exceedingly great army. And you cannot be an exceedingly great army unless your ears are tuned in to hear what? Your commander. For us, it's our Lord. If Lakeside Community Chapel is going to be part of that exceedingly great army, we've got to be tuned in to his word, to his voice, to his authority over us. So we revere the God of the Scripture and our Lord Jesus that the Scriptures point us toward. God made His Son to be head of the body of the true church. So we take every thought captive to obey Christ our Lord. And we would say with Jude that we contend earnestly by, for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And we walk in the spirit of truth, Christ in us, by the Holy Spirit, divinely imparted equally to all believers. The Holy Spirit in us illumines his word, makes it come alive to us, enables us to discern divine truth and know what error is. It was the Holy Spirit who inspired the very words on the pages we read. In Christ, the Holy Spirit is that divine power we possess to walk in holiness And he will be that power through the word, and that is our weapon to continue to execute sin. All the ability to walk a new life, to live holy, was given by grace. It's a continual governing of our thoughts, our emotions, our walk. Received by grace, received at our salvation, all due to the truth that Paul brings up here, our uniting in Christ at his death and resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the deep truths of your word. Father, let us be those people. As we walk out away from here today, we leave Lakeside. We go to our jobs. We have thoughts to control. We have much work that we can do in being Christ-like, Father, and we can do it. So, Father, we just pray that we would be diligent to be in your word each and every day that we would find that truth that gives us that power. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.